Greetings, Eden. It is a joy to be with you this morning. So thankful for your partnership in the gospel. You are a church that loves to see other healthy churches planted. And so your church has planted other healthy churches. You've invested in uh, one of our former pastors, Pastor Diodne Tomfu, as Pastor Dan mentioned, went to Cameroon five years ago, and by God's grace, a healthy church has been planted in Yuande, the capital city. Four years ago, a seminary begun out of that church. And just this last month, one of its first graduates and his wife moved into our basement as he's come back to do one more year of seminary here in the U.S. before he goes back in hope of planting more healthy churches. So it is a joy to be with you. I hold your pastors and this church in the highest regard. Well, this morning I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts and chapter 13, I believe the, the second half of the book of Acts. We're going to be going very quickly over the first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. We're going to reach one climactic moment and ponder what we might learn from that and end with a few applications. But this morning we want to consider the theme of speaking with joyful courage, speaking of Jesus with joyful courage or joy-fueled courage. And we live in a moment in 2023 where it feels like everything is falling apart. It feels like in America, the wheels are coming off. And I don't know if there is a larger need for God's people in this day than to understand where courage comes from. The courage that is fueled by joy that frees us to speak to others of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many reasons to fear, so many reasons to fear that are being thrown at us every day. When we turn on the news or we talk to our friends, there's reasons to fear as parents there's reasons to fear as Christians. There's reasons to fear as Minnesotans. Many of our conversations are about things that are stirring up fear in our hearts. And as we consider the future, it is easy to be gripped by fear. But my hope is that as we enter into this powerful story, we might be freshly filled by our good, kind Father with the fruit of faith, which is joy-filled courage, just as these missionaries were on this first missionary journey. Acts 13, verse 1. You'll remember uh, Acts 1 through 12 focused on Peter in uh, Jerusalem, and now the, the story turns 13 verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch. Antioch was just north of Jerusalem. This is the first other church we hear about. Antioch was planted because things got so bad in Jerusalem. There was so much persecution in Jerusalem that Christians fled Jerusalem and they landed in Antioch. And now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, five leaders, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. You can look at your footnotes there which indicates that Simeon was from Africa. 
Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod. So we've got one who's very connected, one who's from the island of Cyrene, one who's from Africa. Barnabas, who everybody knows, is the great encourager. And there's one more. End of verse 1. Who is that fifth leader, the church of Antioch? Saul, the most unlikely of candidates for elder. When Saul's presented to the church as, hey, we've got a new elder candidate, everyone's going, what? He is the great enemy. But this is the one that our Lord said, he is a chosen instrument of mine, the chief persecutor, the one seeking to murder Christians, throw them in jail. Jesus said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must something for the sake of my name. We think, pastor, I want to be a missionary. I want to be a pastor. I want to be used by God. When God called Paul to be used by God, he called him to suffer. I will show him how much he must suffer. And so we hear again and again of the sufferings of Paul. Five times he said, I was beaten with 39 lashes by Jewish leaders. Imagine going into the synagogue wondering, am I going to be beaten today for trying to speak of Christ? But somebody unfriended me on Facebook. Okay, well, I'm sorry about that. But just to say, the calling involves suffering. And some of you this morning are truly suffering. And I want you to know that God knows. And he will hold you fast. He has not forsaken you. He is not against you. Your suffering is not his wrath. He's a good father and he's for you. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. These are key leaders in the church. The church has to be taken aback. These leaders have to be taken aback. What will we do without Barnabas and Paul? But after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them, trusting that God was going to keep their church even without these key leaders, and they sent them off. Notice a couple of things here. Paul did not go alone. Paul did not send himself off. Anytime you hear someone saying, hey, I'm going to plant a church, ask questions. Because if anybody could have gone alone or sent himself off, it would be Paul. For he was Christ's chosen instrument. He didn't. He was in a church. He was sent off by the church, and he did not go alone. But here the church at Antioch sends their best. And this required courage of that church and of its leaders, that God would be their God. And that may be true for Eden one day. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, there they sailed to Cyprus, so they're beginning their missionary journey now, Barnabas and Paul. They're going to make several stops, and then we're going to key in on four towns that they get to. But when they arrived at Salamis, verse 5, they did what they always do in every town. See what it says in verse 5? They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And you'll just see again and again, they proclaimed the word of God. It said, 
over and over and over in this chapter. People are, are astonished, in verse 12, at the teaching of the Word. It, just before chapter 13, in verse 24 of chapter 12, it says the Word of God increased and multiplied. They didn't go with a big show. They didn't go with lights and smoke. They went with the Word of God. And everywhere they went, they proclaimed the Word of God. Why was that the case? Because, beloved, we live in a world filled with lies. And most of those who live around us live in spiritual bondage and slavery because of these lies. God has given us one weapon. It is his word. This word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, this word that is like a fire, this word that is like a hammer that breaks the stone in pieces, this is what he's given us. Our courage doesn't rest in our ability or our strength. I am terribly weak. I don't come in my own wisdom. All I have for you this morning is the word. So they proclaimed the word in each town where they went. In each town, they showed that Jesus was the Messiah. They declared Christ and not themselves. They showed that Christ was the fulfillment of every book of the Old Testament and every chapter. Now, one thing you've got to understand, just to, just to understand this story well, this town to town, what's, what we're going to see unfold, is that the entire story of the Bible is shaped in the story of a battle. We have two chapters of an idyllic garden. And then Genesis 3, the battle commences. And there God says <clears throat> to Adam and to Eve, to the serpent, he proclaims this curse. And he says that there is going to be a battle for the rest of history between the offspring of the serpent that is, all those who are not believers in Christ and the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the serpent, all those who reject God and his anointed. And the offspring of the woman, all those who by faith call on the name of the Lord. All those who are trusting in Yahweh. All those who are loving his son. But they are in opposition, starting in Genesis 3, clear to the last chapters of Revelation. This war is raging, going, going going. Think about the history of this conflict. When Genesis turns to Exodus, what happens? The offspring of the serpent, Pharaoh, is ready to kill the offspring of the woman, the, the children of his people. And so he sets out to kill all those baby boys, and God spares Moses. When the New Testament opens, the offspring of the serpent, Herod, wants to kill all the baby boys of God's people. And again, one is rescued, Christ, who is himself the offspring of the woman. But this battle is raging, raging, raging. So Eden, let me freshly remind you that we have been born into a battle. It is very real, it is very sharp, and it is very serious. If somehow you have been lulled into forgetting the reality of this battle, if you have been living unaware of this battle, if you have been casually strolling through the battlefield, I want you to know bad things are going to happen. We just read Ephesians 6. 
finally be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then verse 11, do you remember it? This verse was so important to my favorite preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that he spent one full year preaching one verse. Ephesians 6, 11, which says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Sorry, that's verse 12. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes or might be understood against the carefully crafted personalized ambushes of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. See, Paul understood this battle. God had made it clear to him. And you have to understand that your battle, friend, is not against your neighbor, it's not against a political party or a political leader. It is against Satan. That's terrible news. The glorious news is that you don't have to win the victory. Christ has won the victory, and he invites you to be strengthened in him and put on his whole armor. And this is the battle that Barnabas and Paul were engaged. Town to town, everywhere they go, they're preaching, and there's a battle. What chance did they have? They had the living word of God. Would there be suffering? Absolutely. Down to verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Pamphos. And they came to Perga. John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. This is a different Antioch. They were sent out from Antioch, but this is a different Antioch. And there's four towns that I mentioned we're going to key in on. This is town one. What did they do? No surprise. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. In every city they went, they did the same thing. They preached Christ. They instructed the believers who had converted. They gathered them into churches and they appointed leaders. Town after town, they do the same thing. Look at verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. They're in a Jewish synagogue. Christ has never been preached before. Paul has been beaten multiple times in this same context. So Paul stood up and motioning with his head, with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. All scripture points to Jesus the son of David. Down to verse 26. We can't go through the whole sermon. It is excellent. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem, their rulers, they did not recognize Christ. Though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who he had come up with from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers of many centuries back, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. Paul uses Psalm 2, he uses Isaiah 55, he uses Psalm 16, he uses Habakkuk 1, all pointing to Christ and how God had promised 
to send Christ and to raise Christ. Verse 35, therefore, God says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father, saw corruption, his body decayed. But Christ, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. And now we get to the the high point of this message. Now we begin to see God turning this town on its head. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, verse 38, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law showed them their sin. It showed them that their theft was wrong, their lying was wrong, their adultery was wrong, their dishonor of parents was wrong. The law shows us our guilt. The law shows us our inability. But here comes Paul declaring that Christ has come to set them and to set us free from all that the law could not set us free of. The law shows sin to be sin. It does not give the power to master sin. Friends, let's pause here for a moment and just ask, what is it in your life today that only God can free you from? What is it today that you have been battling inwardly, quietly, hearing the accusations of your enemy, telling you you're worthless, that it's hopeless, that you can never tell another soul He lured you, and then he accuses you. That is what our enemy does. Friends, that's not the voice of your father. He does not say to you, you're worthless. It's hopeless. Just give up. Just go on in sin. Jesus came so that everyone who believes in him would be freed from everything that we could not be freed from in the law. I want you to know that today, friend, is the day to go and talk with a friend and say, I need Christ. I've been trying to do it on my own and I can't do it anymore. I need Christ. You say it might be humbling, it might be humiliating, but Jesus has come to set you free. So bring it to him. An addiction, guilt, shame, hidden secrets, Satan wants to isolate you and he wants to keep just hammering at you. What is it that you love more than Christ? Ask yourself, what gets me out of the bed and gets me going and really has my heart more than Christ? You might say with with Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I, I don't do the things I don't want to do. I keep doing those things. This is exactly what Paul was preaching Everyone who believes in Christ is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It was powerful then and it's powerful right now in this moment. When you bring it to Jesus, he already knows it. And he already died for it. 
And he came to set them free. He came to set you free. And where there is freedom, there is joy. There is joy. Well, the story continues. Verse 42, as they went out, the people who had never heard this gospel message before begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Is anybody going to come back next week to hear these guys? Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. You're wondering, should I talk to my friend about the gospel at work? Will they even care? Oh, friend, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not because we're amazing or we have it all polished, but because this good news is powerful. The whole city gathered to hear the word of God. But... Here comes the battle. When unbelieving Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke up boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jewish people. They went to the synagogue and spoke to Jewish people. It says that some of those Jewish people believed and followed them, but others now are opposing them. They're pushing back. There's conflict. So now comes a really important moment in church history. He says, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now in this scope, the Jews were here listening in the synagogue, but clearly there were Gentiles here. Nearly the whole city was here. And and he turns from these Jewish listeners and he turns to these Gentile listeners And it says in verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Loved ones, all of history has been preparing for this very moment. God has arranged events in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, to bring them to this moment. Consider, very briefly, three dots. Isaiah 46 in one of those great servant songs, God says to his, of his servant, his servant Christ, I will make you a light to the nations. And then the, the second dot is in when, when Jesus is being brought to the temple as a little baby. And there's that old man, Simeon. Do you remember old man, Simeon? And, and, and Joseph and Mary bring the baby to the temple. And Simeon begins to rejoice. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, now, Father, now I can depart. For you said there would be one who would be a light to the nations, and now here he is. So Isaiah predicted it. Simeon said that Christ was this, and now Christ has commissioned Paul, and now Paul here has been made a light for the Gentiles, that he might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So all of history was preparing for this moment, this turning from the Jews to the Gentiles, going out from, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is the beginning of the ends of the earth. And so now they speak and they turn to these Gentiles. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, 
they begin rejoicing and glorifying, that is, praising, honoring the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. If you're here today and saying, uh, Pastor, I don't go to church, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what was it that he said that, that, that caused this response, this rejoicing? Let me just summarize this good news in one verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The holy God who knew no sin takes the sinful sin of all of us who disobey his law and when we put our trust in Christ he lays all of our guilt and shame on Christ and Christ was perfect, perfect in his obedience and he lays all of that perfection on Christ us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is his plan. This is his message of joy. And this is what caused the Gentiles, when they heard this, to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. It spreads to the whole region. Verse 50, the conflict, though, is right there. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. What did they do, Paul and Barnabas? They shook the dust from their feet against them. They went on to Iconium. They went on to town two. But don't miss verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy. And the Holy Spirit. Well, they just got chased out of town. Why were they filled with joy? Because they just saw God cause light to break forth among the Gentiles. They just saw captives who had never been freed from sin before be set free. They just saw the joy of new birth in Christ. And there's no better joy than that. We just got to pause here and talk about joy for a moment because this is a great reality. Loved ones, when you realize who God is, when you realize who we are, you realize what our actual need is and what God has done, when this truly lands on you, the result is joy. And courage is the fruit of joy. Joy comes from understanding what God has done, who Christ is for us. And courage is the fruit that grows out of the root of joy. So joy and courage work together. Joy is this fruit of seeing God work powerfully in our lives and the lives of others. So Eden, I invite you to ask God for a fresh measure of courage that comes from joy, this powerful working of God. Think about joy, just a, just a couple of texts that come to mind. My wife, Leslie, and I have been married 25 years. We have seven children. As our children have gotten older, one of our favorite verses is from 3 John, when John says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. When you walk through suffering, and then out from that, God produces faith in your children. 
say, praise God. That is joy. That is joy. Think about Jesus. In John 15, he says, I've spoken all of these things to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Think of what Paul says to the Corinthians when he says, we work with you for your joy. He says, I am acting with great boldness towards you. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Friends, when we are caught up with this joy, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. When we have this joy, then out comes from that courage, Christ-centered courage that we so much need. And when you say, Pastor, I don't know this joy, then I say, repent of all known sin and ask God to fill you freshly with his Holy Spirit. Because joy is the fruit, not of our natural man, but of his Holy Spirit working in us. On we go. Chapter 14, town two, Iconium. Town one, Antioch, town two. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. What a summary. Same thing is happening. They're speaking of Christ in this Jewish synagogue and a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But again, verse two, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God's confirming these guys are from me. They have my authority. They're speaking of Jesus is from me. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the unbelieving Jews, some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to kill them by hurling large stones at them, they learned of it and they fled to town three and town four, to Lystra and to Derby, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the good news. Can you imagine you're going on a short-term trip, mission trip with Pastor Rich? You start doing your gospel preaching or your puppet show or your basketball camp. Time out, start to speak of Jesus and people pick up large rocks to throw them at you. It, it's hard for us to, to get our head around what that was like. To, to think, would, would that really happen now? Well, I invite you to consider going to the Minnesota State Fair and opening up Romans 1 and telling your hearers that they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And as a result, God has given them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Go down to my neck of the woods to Loring Park and preach that at the Pride Festival. You may not get stoned, but you will be assaulted with venomous profanity in your face. You may be arrested. Friends, the opposition takes different forms, but it is the same opposition that they face, that we face today at work, at the park. The story continues. Town three, 
Now at Lystra, chapter 14, verse 8, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And then the town is amazed. This guy that they all know who's, who's never been able to walk, who's been crippled his entire life, who's, who's, whose legs don't work. Suddenly he springs up and begins walking and they begin to treat them as gods. Paul and Barnabas, no, 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 no. We're not Zeus. We're not Hermes. No. Men, why are you doing these things? Verse 15. We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. What a good thing to say to those that you love. I've come with good news to turn you from vain things like the Vikings <laughs> or your favorite political candidate. They're not going to bring you joy no matter how much you devote yourself to them that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19, but these enemies, these unbelieving Jews came from town one and town two, from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. And now what do they do? They do what they threaten to do in town two, they pick up large rocks. Paul is there. He's preaching. And one after another, they throw them at his body, at his face, to kill him. And then they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I told you there was one moment in this story we needed to stop and focus on. This is it. This is the moment. Think about what's happening in this moment. Here is a man of God filled with the Spirit declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. His life, his suffering, his, his death, his resurrection. The response of the crowd, hostility, to rise up, pick up large rocks, and hurl them at the speaker in order to kill him. And I want you to think, this story bring any echoes of a story you've heard before? Let me repeat what I said. Repeat what's going on in this story. Here is a man of God, filled with the Spirit of God, preaching the good news of God, the work of Christ, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. The hearers of this man of God are so enraged that they pick up stones and are ready to, to murder the speaker. This story sound familiar? Because it should. Because it happened seven chapters before. When Stephen, the first martyr, was the speaker, filled with the Holy Spirit, declaring the good news of Jesus. And in that story of Stephen, all of those opponents who are picking up stones to kill him laid their garments at the feet of 
Saul, who is now himself being stoned. Stephen had amazing courage because even as he's being stoned to death, what is he praying? Father, just like his Savior, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Who is one of the people Stephen was praying for? He's praying for Saul. And that enemy became the missionary who himself would be stoned for speaking of Christ. Wow. That is one of the greatest moments of courage ever, what happened to Stephen. And we're about to see with Paul another one of the greatest moments of courage ever. I love this moment. This brother's courage is remarkable. But there is one greater moment of courage that both of these moments echo. What I would present to you is the greatest moment of courage in all of history, which is when in the garden, Christ knew that all of God's holy wrath would be laid on him. He knew why he had come. He knew God's calling to him to obey. And yet the weight of that reality was so great that he sweat great drops of blood and he prayed, Father, if there's any possible way, let this cup pass from me. But then in obedience to his father and out of an overflowing heart of love for you, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And think about what Christ did for you in that moment. Think about the great blessing, the blessing, the ironic blessing from number 624. The Lord bless you and keep you. You know that blessing? You've heard it hundreds of times. Christ knew at that moment the opposite of that blessing was about to occur. My father will curse me and will cast me aside. My father will turn his face of kindness and love away from me. And instead of being gracious to me, he will pour out all of his holy wrath on me. The Lord will cast me down as the cursed one hanging on the tree. And instead of giving me peace, he will give me the opposite of peace. Anxiety and pain. More excruciating than any one has ever experienced before. Why, friend? Why did that happen? So that for you who are in Christ this morning, that would never, ever, ever happen again. All you would know is that wonderful blessing from Numbers 624, which you will hear at the end of the service. All of that for you, loved one, is true if you are in Christ this morning. And it's that love that motivated our Savior. It's that joy that motivated our Savior. Think about what does Hebrews tell us motivated Christ at that moment when he is facing all of this wrath, all of this cursedness. What motivated him? 
Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Well, we're talking about joy. So we got to think about that joy for a moment here and just consider what was that joy that was set before him? What was the joy that Jesus was fixated on? Well, we get a little uh, hint of this in his high priestly prayer when, when Jesus says, Father, let these people that I have died for, let these people that you have given me, let my people be with me to see my glory that you have given me. We hear that and we go, okay, what does that mean? Well, God's glory is the sum and source of all of his godness, all of his goodness, all of his beauty, all of his power. And Jesus was saying, I want my people to be with me to see all of who I am because it's all for them. I want them to be with me, to experience the fullness of who I am, the, all of my perfection spilling out for them. You say, I, I still don't get it. Okay, let me say it like this. I have one favorite part in every Christ-centered wedding I've ever been to. My favorite part, now think about this, my oldest son, who's a police officer here at Egan, uh, by God's grace, married a wonderful girl who loves Jesus a couple years ago. My favorite moment of the wedding is he had waited, he hadn't seen her get all prepared, you know, all of the, the work you ladies know, all the work that's done to, to get ready. It's days and hours, it's really amazing. But there she was, her dad was walking around the corner and, and he had faced the other way and then he turned around and he saw her. I love looking at the groom's face at that moment. And my son's face was filled with emotion. Let me tell you what emotions weren't happening at that moment. Regret, boredom, anger, Those emotions were, wow, overcome. I can't handle this. Joy, tears that are joy. This is amazing. I can't believe this. The reason that's my favorite moment is because it's such a picture of what's to come for you and I who are in Christ. See, it, it says in Ephesians that Christ loved his church so much that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. All of your, your, your trials and difficulties and sufferings are, are, are your bridegroom washing you, sanctifying you, cleansing you. Why? So that Christ might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is getting us ready so that he might present us to himself on the great wedding feast. That's how the story ends. Read the last chapters. That's how the story ends. And his face at that moment, according to Jude one twenty four, he's not going to look at you and have regret. He's not going to look at you and say, ah, I could have done better. He's not. There's a voice that would say that to us. That's the voice of the enemy that's lying. Jude one twenty four says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. All of history is preparing us for this moment of joy when we will be with him forever. Turning around, seeing the bride, the bride seeing the bridegroom forever. That's what Jesus was thinking about when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. When he died on that cross. That's what Stephen was looking forward to as those stones were pelting him. And this is what Paul had in his mind as these rocks are raining down on him such that he could say later on, these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And we say, Paul, my suffering is not light. And he says, I know, I know. It's just that in comparison to the greatness of the joy of the glory that we're going to experience, it is small. But the blessing for those of us who are in Christ is that all of his promises are yes and amen. Tomorrow, in your hardest moment and forever, he is with you and he will present you before the presence of his glory with great joy. Okay, what does Paul do next? We got to wrap this story up. What would we do? We're in town three We've been stoned. We've been left for dead. We're, we're beaten. They think we're dead. We're not dead. He's down there on the ground saying, I'm not dead yet, right? But he's got blood. He's got broken arms. He, he needs stitches. And, and what would we do? We're on our mission trip. To We've gone all the way across the border, two miles to Mexico, and now we, this happens to us. And what do we do? We're on the flight home. We're, we're, we're in the hospital. We're, we're, we're done. Obviously, we're going home. But we see here, someone of a different ilk, someone of a different courage, a joy-filled courage. Look at Acts 14, verse 20. They're all gathered around saying, Paul, let's get you to a hospital. Let's get you home. When the disciples gathered about him, in my mind, there's like dramatic music playing at this moment. There's Braveheart music or something. Paul rose up he entered the city, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to town four, to Derby. And you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Michael Jordan played with a cold. What courage? No. <laughs> this, this is courage. And then they're at town four, and, and, and very likely the same thing happens. They preach Christ, people believe. They, they teach those believers, they disciple them, they gather them into a church, they appoint leaders. Now what's he going to do? Well, of course, now he's going to go home, right? No, no. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, town four, and had made many disciples, they returned to where? To town three. And of course, his friends are saying, uh, Paul, do you, do, you, do you remember what happened? In Lystra? Do you remember what they did to you? He, he says, we've got something more important. We've got something more important. 
They return to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch. And what do they do when they return? Why does he go back to Lystra? It's not enough just to plant the church and appoint the leaders. Verse 22, they went strengthening the souls of the disciples. They gathered this little church. They gathered these few leaders and they encouraged them to continue in the faith saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This guy is battered. He is beaten. He's got an arm and a sling. He's using a crutch. And he's saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And they're saying, okay, okay, okay. This whole world is shaking. But Hebrews tells us we've been given the one unshakable thing, which is, the kingdom of God, right? So through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed to them to the Lord in whom they believed. Same plan, every town, this passion for church planting, a passion for sharing joy. It's happening then, it's happening now. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, and when they had commended, been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled, they gathered the church together. They told them all that God had done, and they rejoiced. And then, last verse, sneaking into Acts 15. Acts 15, verse 3, as they're telling the story of what God had done, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, it brought great joy to all of the brothers. Eden, sum it up in one sentence. Our joy in the good news of the light that has come through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the root that bears the fruit of Christ-centered courage. Say it in a simpler way. The good news of Christ produces a joy that bears courage, that enables you to face whatever our God is calling you to face tomorrow and next week and next year. Two brief applications and we're done. Application number one, let me encourage you to parent with joy-filled courage because this world wants your children. Sinclair Ferguson says, since the family is the apex of creation, that is that God made man and woman, marriage and family, then it shouldn't surprise us that this is where the enemy attacks. Godly parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles are needed. Be so careful, parents, with screens. Be so careful of all the visions they seek to tell to your children, all those channels and programs. We must guard our children in truth and beauty and joy. Spurgeon said, pray for your children. Wrestle with God for them night and day. You say, well, pastor, I don't have kids. I'm single. So did, so was Paul. And he had so many spiritual children. We read on the second missionary journey that in that town he went on to go to in Derby, there was a young believer that God raised up through that ministry, and his name was Timothy. Amazing, right? They don't have to be your children. It's love children. Be a parent. He has given you your particular situation with your particular trials and difficulties from his loving hand 
with all of its challenges and difficulties. Second and last application. Loved ones, soak in the word of God so that you may speak with joy-filled courage. Courage comes from the unchangeable word of God. Give yourself to the word of God. When the book of Joshua begins, there's a call to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, and that is mingled with a call to courage. When the book of Psalms begins, the call to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. When you, loved ones, give yourself to reading and thinking and meditating and memorizing and coming to hear the word of God preached, it begins to overflow out of you. And God has called us to be his witnesses by his spirit. Witnesses that let the word of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the joy of Christ, the truth of God's beautiful design of manhood and womanhood, God's beautiful design for family, God's design for marriage, all of these things just overflow with us. And in the face of opposition, he gives us joy-filled courage to go on speaking the good news of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we worship you that you are not a God who is silent, but you have spoken to us the words of life, the words of joy, and we pray in our weakness and in our suffering that you would comfort us, you would strengthen us, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, with your joy, that would produce in us a fresh courage that we would go on speaking this wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. We are weak, you are strong. Strengthen us in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the strength of his might. We need you, we bless you, we worship you. You are glorious, you are good. And so we thank you in Jesus' mighty name, amen.